Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. That I just need to get over it and move on so that the community can forget the darkness. Human beings. Oh, how we love our metaphors. Symbolic imagery that help us make sense out of the senseless. How we cope with things we can't comprehend or explain. Light has become a metaphor for goodness. Darkness, not so good. Bad, even. Because we've learned that it's often in the darkness. That's where the evil lurks. The all-too-human predators who bide their time, waiting for the light, the unsuspecting innocent. And so it was in the disappearance of Lindsay Baum. There's no explaining how a 10-year-old little girl vanishes, seemingly without a trace, in all that darkness. Because small towns aren't immune. Even places where people say, and want to desperately believe, that nothing much ever happens there. Is McCleary a town where it's like, leave it to Beaver? Or is it like, is this, are they trying to protect something? I thought something? it was leave it to Beaver. Yeah, I, now when I think of it, I think of deliverance. And I know that sounds bad, but I don't know any other way to describe it. And in this town, one mother's quest to make sure that nothing in this town would ever be the same again. A meeting where one of the council members stated that I'm tired of every time somebody Googles McCleary, Washington, Lindsay Bomb pops up. Well, I have news for that city council person. I have no intentions on letting the world forget that Lindsay Baum and McCleary go hand in hand, because they do. Even once justice has been served, I, I don't see why she's such a stain. It's not like she's the first horrific tragedy or crime that happened in that community. There's someone out there that knows who did this and how this happened. And there's people out there that have information that would be the nugget that we need to explode this investigation and culminate in an arrest. We need those people to have the courage to come forward and share that information. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to Episode 69, The Vanishing. The small town of McCleary is one of those places. If you happen to find yourself driving through it, for most, it would be no more than a blip on the radar. The most exciting yearly event is a festival that celebrates bears. However, the idea of small town America sounded pretty good to Melissa. A newly single mom in 2007, she was desperate for a safe harbor after a rocky journey over the last couple of years. See, Melissa had grown up in the Lacey area, near Olympia, Washington, which is the state capital. And here she was back in a state that she'd left when her husband was in the military. After his service, they settled in Tennessee where they had planned to raise their kids permanently. Their children, Josh and Lindsay, were just a year apart, and Melissa was a stay-at-home mom. At least, that had been the plan. But Melissa's relationship with her husband was deteriorating. Had been for a while. It had gotten to the point where she knew the marriage couldn't be saved, and she did not want her kids to grow up in a chaotic household. So she packed up the kids, and they moved back to Lacey in 2007. Well, after my ex-husband and I separated, um, the kids and I moved back to Olympia. I grew up in Olympia, Lacey. And we were living in just a little two-bedroom apartment in Lacey. And 
moving from Tennessee, uh, where we had lived in small towns for several years after getting out of the army, I, I just was overwhelmed, especially at just how much Lacey had exploded during the years that I was away. Melissa says that life as a single parent was rough, made more difficult by the fact that she wasn't receiving any financial support from her estranged husband. I really had some trouble with childcare when we first moved back, and I was a single parent. I was getting nothing from my ex-husband. He was 100% absent from the day that the kids and I got on the plane. And my son, who um, has autism, kept. We, we were struggling with childcare. He 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 got expelled from three different Y cares in the North Thurston School District, and there was no services. Like I, I like there was just nothing. A really good friend of Melissa's stepped up big time to help. So my friends who I'd grown up with, we've been known each other since we were in Brownies together. She's like, if you want to move out here, uh, I can watch Josh and Lindsay for you before and after school. That's why we put him in Elma, because she lived and owned a business in Elma. McCleary was near Elma, which was 30 minutes away from where Melissa worked in Olympia, which meant she'd have a brutal commute both ways. And she wasn't crazy about how rural McCleary was, a former logging town. I was one of those paranoid mothers. Like, if you, Lindsay, for one, set up my MySpace, I wasn't, I, I wasn't even as tech savvy as she was. And you know, I didn't even put pictures. The only pictures of my kids were of them in their Halloween costumes and stuff. Like, I was always so fearful. And I was recently divorced, like very, very recently divorced. And it was Lindsay pushing me to try and date. And I was so fearful of inviting somebody into our life that would hurt my kids. And it's just weird that I, I tried to be so cautious. I used to pull up the sex offender registry in the area, and I would make both of my kids and any of their friends that were around, because they always had friends at the house, always, look at them and say, you know, make sure they knew what they looked like in case they ever saw them. They knew, you know, to stay away or, and to come straight home. Even though Melissa had her heart set on living in Elma, in the summer of 2007, before Josh and Lindsay started fifth and fourth grades, Melissa was stressed because she couldn't find housing in Elma, which is where she wanted to live. Well, there wasn't anything in Elma at the time. And because it was summer, I was in a crunch because I needed to get moved before the school year. So we ended up finding a place in McCleary. And I've spent a lot of time in Elma through my teen and early 20s, you know, coming to the fairgrounds for concerts and the races every Saturday night. But I don't think I had been to McCleary prior to the day I went to look at the house. How far is Elma from McCleary? Um, like seven to nine miles, depending on which way you go. So would Elma be considered the big city and McCleary's the more a little bit more rural in a rural area? <laughs> uh, well, that depends on what you think of as a big city. I guess if you thought of Olympia as being the size of Seattle, you could maybe think. No, uh, Elma is a little bigger. I'm really not sure the population, no more than 5,000. Yeah. If that. I don't even think it's that. But McCleary is like 1,400. If you couldn't tell, Melissa did not want to live in McCleary. It wasn't her first choice. But as a struggling single parent, she made do and settled in McCleary. It sounds like from talking to the sheriff, and I kind of figured this already, this is like a quiet, sleepy town, no crime. Mm-hmm. Everybody's... Well, no crime that anybody was aware of. That, that's, more, that's more correct. <laughs> So but, how long yes, had you guys... It was a quiet, se- sleepy little town that I developed a false sense of safety in. 
Melissa had made it work for nearly two years, but by 2009, she was fed up. She had made plans to leave McCleary by the end of the summer, before the kids started school again. The catalyst for the move was her son Josh turning 12, which meant he would be transferring to junior high, and she found out that his new school wouldn't accommodate his educational plan. The middle school would not accept his IEP because they didn't have to because we lived out of district. So I was forced to put my kids in McCleary, which was a nightmare from day one, like utter, total nightmare from day one. Because they weren't supportive of you as a single parent? or I mean, there's so many things to unpack well, no, there. Just the, or... school, the, the school's issues, I, it was constant struggles with my son and his rights being violated. I, I went so far as to file a complaint with the superintendent of public instruction against the principal slash district administrator. I mean, there was a lot of issues in the school. And that's why I was just ready to get out of town. So that was the plan. By the end of summer 2009, Melissa and her children would move away from McCleary, heading back to Olympia, where there would be services to accommodate Josh's needs. To get out of this town, I needed to get my kids out. I was trying to move back to Olympia and um, still not knowing what I was going to do as far as child care, but I knew I needed out of McCleary. So you're a, you know, you're a single mom, but you're a, you fight like hell for your kids. And McCleary was just not good for you guys. You wanted to get back to Olympia, but you just couldn't, yeah. you were in that process as, you know, on a budget, probably trying to figure out how to make it all work. Right. And so. Exactly. Meantime, Melissa's daughter, Lindsay, had plans to make the most of it with her friends. Her and Josh spent a lot of time at the park by their house, and they had tons of friends around the neighborhood. She was really trying to establish her independence. She she was trying to grow up too fast, and we battled over it. You know, like our most recent argument, it was she wanted to dye her hair black with red highlights. And I was adamant that that was not going to happen. Or her cutting up all her brand new jeans. We'd just gone and bought, you know, a bunch of clothes, including, you know, four or five pairs of Amber Crombie and Finch jeans. And she was so excited because it was the first time that she had, like, she was just starting to fill out because she was so tiny. She'd always had to wear slim jeans. And finally, she could wear these from the store because she could fit into them. Um, but she cut the knees out of them. And so we were fighting about that. And I'm like, I mean, you're from now on, you get goodwill jeans and that's it. Like, forget it. Always a force to be reckoned with. She was never meek a mile a minute. She, sometimes she would just exhaust me listening to her or watching her would just wear me. And I would tell her like, Oh, Lindsay, you make me tired. Just listening to you. (laughs) Lindsay loved to lose herself in a book. She also wrote and illustrated her own stories and had dreams of being a writer and a veterinarian because she loved animals. But there had been a man out looking for his dog, and Lindsay was like a save the animal missionary. Like, she would see a dog wandering, and she'd bring it home and put it on our dog's tie-out to try and figure out who it belonged to to make sure it got home. Like, And according to Melissa, her daughter Lindsay was sensitive, the kind of sensitive that veered toward empathic, She was a child with the ability to see things before they happen, according to her mom. And that summer, in early June, Lindsay shared with her mother that she was worried that something bad was going to happen, but she couldn't say what it was. Melissa tried to reassure her daughter, who loved the Twilight books and Harry Potter. In fact, mother and daughter would read together each night. We were in the middle of of reading um, The Chamber of Secrets, the second book, together at night. We had started 
taking turns reading and I'd read until I got tired and then she'd read and I'd usually fall asleep while she was reading because she could read for hours. And we were in the middle of uh, the Chamber of Secrets, which is the second one. Lindsay, like a lot of kids and even some adults, had a fear of the dark. But for Lindsay, according to her mom, she'd also become superstitious about the nighttime, believing that darkness brought the witching hour. In folklore, the witching hour, or the devil's hour, is the time of night associated with supernatural events. Now, Melissa knew that Lindsay was imaginative and creative and a little dramatic, but she still didn't dismiss her girl's heightened intuition, particularly that summer when Lindsay got scared and told her mom that something wicked was coming their way. And she said, Mom, I just have this really bad feeling that something bad's going to happen. And I said, like what? And she said, I don't know. I just have a feeling. She knew something was coming. She didn't know what. On June 26, 2009, it was a typical summer day for Lindsay and her brother Josh, spent the entire day at a pool party with the neighborhood kids. And that Friday night... Lindsay, her brother Josh, her friend Michaela, and a bunch of other kids ran back home to Melissa at around 8 p.m., where Lindsay begged her mom to let Michaela have a sleepover. They left my house. They um, were going to run to Michaela's and get Michaela's clothes and come straight back. Like, we're talking 15 minutes, round trip. And I said, well, you guys make a hurry up and come straight back. It's going to be dark before long. And it was not dark. And Lindsay didn't like to be out after dark. And I knew that my car wasn't running. Um, so I was just telling her, you know, I can't come pick you up. So hurry up and get back here before dark. And when she was leaving, um, I had mentioned, you know, if that, if that man looking for his dog comes back around, you know not to get close enough to a car for somebody to reach out and grab you, right? And she looked at me and she goes, duh, mom, I'm not stupid. And she pranced out the door. And that was the last conversation that you had with Lindsay? The last word she said to me. I'm sorry. That's all right. (laughs) Um. It wasn't long before Josh came back home. He was frustrated. Apparently, he'd gotten into a tiff with Lindsay because she'd accidentally broken the chain off his bike as they were making their way over to Michaela's. After about a half an hour, Lindsay and Michaela hadn't returned. And so Melissa called her daughter on her cell phone. Started trying to call her and she wasn't answering. And I was trying to call her friend's mom, who also wasn't answering. Apparently her phone, if I remember correctly, was dead. But she did call me back a little while later. And she's like, well, no, Lindsay's been gone, I want to say, like, 20 minutes or 30 minutes at that point. I don't remember exactly. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Like, okay. And I went out and I was looking for her and I was calling for her and I started kept calling her phone and I left her several voicemails like, Lindsay Joe, when you get home, you're grounded for a month. I bought you a phone so that I could keep in contact with you. And when you don't answer it, you don't deserve to have it. Like I was, I went through a getting angry to total panic. Like, Lindsay, where are you? I need you to come home right now. And, and was it dark at it this point? Dark. It wasn't completely dark, but it was it was it was a little it was darker than dusk for sure by this point. Michaela's mom would tell Melissa that she'd put the kibosh on the sleepover and that Lindsay had left their house and headed for home at around 9:30. It was just a 10-minute walk, but by that time all the other kids had gone home, and so Lindsay walked it alone. This new information seized Melissa's chest. Her heart raced in a panic. 
Her daughter wasn't at Michaela's. She certainly wasn't at home. And she's not answering her cell phone. Where is she? I, I still can't explain that night. It is like the world turned upside down for that night. I, I still cannot explain how everything that went wrong could have gone wrong, but it did. My car wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't use my car. My car was broken. Otherwise, she wouldn't have ever been walking. She left her cell phone at home, which I'm, I'm 99.9% sure was accidental because she never went anywhere without her cell phone. She'd take her charger if her phone was going to die. She didn't take our German Shepherd that went everywhere with her. She left the house with like half a dozen kids, including my son and her friend. And they all went their separate ways. And then my son, who turned around and came back home because they'd gotten in an argument over her breaking the chain on his bike. And she just dumped the bike on the side of the road and said, oh, I'll get it on the way back home. And he's like, wait a minute, you can't just leave my bike on the side of the road. And um, so they were arguing over it. And a friend of mine that lived just before where they were going texted me and said, oh, I saw the kids. They were fighting. So I sent Josh home. Melissa, now frantic. Her car isn't working, so she can't go driving up and down the street looking for her girl. She is so desperate for help. She turns to Lindsay's beloved German Shepherd, Cadence, locking eyes with the dog that has become their protector, directs her out of the house saying, Go find Lindsay. Go find her. Melissa continues to frantically dial her daughter's cell phone over and over, and it just keeps ringing and then goes to voicemail. It sounds like it went pretty quick from being mad, like, where are you, to... You well, know, yeah, because by the time it was dark, like, I, there's no way she would have been, like, when, by the time it was dark is when I called, when I called the police, when it got dark, because I knew there was no way, like, she would have been home before dark or she would have called me. But that was also about the time that I had, in one of my calls, I was walking down the hall towards, I don't remember where, but as I was walking down the hall calling her, I heard her phone ringing in her bedroom. And oh that's when I realized gosh. that her phone was at home. And I'm like, what the hell? Melissa, waiting for the McCleary police to arrive, turns her attention to Lindsay's phone and proceeds to dial every single contact programmed inside the cell phone and asking anyone and everyone if they've seen Lindsay, if they know where she is. And what were you doing? And I mean, you, your car wasn't working. By that point, I was outside, but I was afraid to leave at that, at that moment. But Michaela's parents and Michaela and her brother were... Um, driving around looking for her and um her and Michaela's oldest sister was at home in case she went back there so they were out looking for her and then a couple of her other friends that I had called had started you know trying to look for her Melissa's mind goes to a horrible place she's beside herself as she thinks about that guy who was driving around looking for his dog had he come back had he asked her to help him find the dog of course she couldn't get that thought out of her mind of Lindsay's premonition, which she'd shared with her just a week before. And she said, Mom, I just have this really bad feeling that something bad's going to happen. And I said, like what? And she said, I don't know. I just have a feeling. She knew something was coming. She didn't know what. The McCleary police would arrive on Melissa's doorstep at around 10 o'clock that night. But it wasn't long before the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Office, a larger law enforcement agency in the area, would take the lead. Here's retired Sheriff Rick Scott from the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Office. So the city of McClary is very small. 
rural community in our eastern edge of Grace Harbor County. They, at the time, had a chief of police and, I believe, three officers. One of their officers was called out at 10 o'clock that Friday night to initiate the search for Lindsay. And then one of my patrol sergeants, because they're on the same frequency we are, was kind of listening about to what was going on, you know, realized that they were looking for a, a juvenile female. And as the night wore on, he eventually went down there and offered our assistance in, in trying to help locate her. And, and so he had some of my deputies then go down and, and start to assist in just doing a neighborhood search. An overnight neighborhood search by law enforcement captured people's attention in town. And it wasn't long before word had spread like wildfire throughout the community that there was a missing 10-year-old girl. People came out of the woodwork to help search for Lindsay that night. It was after the sergeant left my house. Oh gosh, it was probably 11.30 by the ish, I'm guessing. it was. I just remember standing there at the end of my driveway and um, it, it like hit me. It was like it slapped me in the face. I, I was standing at the foot of my driveway, like trying to look in every direction and trying to think, what am I going to do? Where do I, you, you know, and it just kind of hit me and I... Standing there with three phones in my hand. I had our house phone and my cell phone and her cell phone. And um, it just hit me like, this can't be happening. That was that was what I thought. That was my, my like, this, this can't be happening. This doesn't happen. By sunrise, the canines were out searching for any trace of Lindsay. It wasn't until well into the morning hours of Saturday that my office became involved in this more than just having a couple deputies help McClary PD look for her. So by Saturday morning, activated a huge number of search and rescue volunteers to aid in searching the area because we, again, had no clue as to why or how it was that she was missing. And we still hadn't ruled out that she was hiding out at a friend's house or something of that nature overnight. But as the day wore on, and we began to canvas the neighborhood and talk to the campus whose residence she had left at about 9.30 to head home. That's when we realized that there was more to this than her just disappearing. She'd left her phone at home. She had no money. She was you know, 10 years old and had no viable means to stay away for any length of time. So that's when we learned that she was last seen in the between the between 4th and 6th Street uh, on Maple going east towards her home. And so those were really the only initial clues that we had were that we knew what time she'd left their home. We knew that it was a 10-minute walk to her home, essentially a straight line. And we had two different people who verified that they saw her in that two-block period. One person saw her a little closer to 4th, one person a little closer to 6th. But those were the only real clues that we had as we started out on this investigation. Right away, they were troubled by the fact that they didn't really have anything. Because the challenge with Lindsay's disappearance was that they had no idea where she'd been taken from and the circumstances behind that abduction. It was as if she'd vanished into thin air. The only thing investigators had to work with was the information that had been told to them by Melissa, Lindsay's mom, and then what Michaela and her parents had described, how Lindsay had walked out the door and headed for home at around 9.30 p.m. It was about a 10-minute walk back to her house, five blocks. The only lead they had was that a neighbor had told police that they'd seen her between 5th and 6th streets, but that was the last time that she'd been seen. That weekend, hundreds of searchers, canines, horseback riders to search the deep woods that surrounded the town, and police divers trolled the nearby waterways. Sunday morning, I had about 30-some local detectives roll into town and about 30-some FBI agents roll into town. By Monday, 
I had close to 100 detectives and FBI agents, along with the Missing and Exploited Children's Unit from the State Patrol. FBI also activated a Missing and Exploited Children's Unit out of that they have that's regional for the West Coast. And so we had a huge input of regional, local, state, and federal investigators come together to form a team of investigators that would be in McClary for not just weeks, but for months to come as we worked this investigation. At the same time, I continued to run the search and rescue component, and we brought the uh, we brought in resources and set up food and provisions uh, for all the detectives and volunteers, and we basically worked to a large degree around the clock nonstop. Of course, Melissa at home, agonizing over everything her daughter had said to her in the weeks before her disappearance. She shared with investigators anything she could think of. How just a week before her disappearance, Lindsay had told her that she and a friend were in the public restroom at the park and a guy had walked in on them. The man had sped off on his bike. Lindsay had also told her mother that summer that she and her friend had felt like a guy had been following them in a white car. Investigators chased that down and found out that a white vehicle matching the description that Lindsay had given to her mother was seen on surveillance video at a gas station nearby, close to the time that Lindsay had disappeared. That lead was investigated, but nothing came of it. Melissa also had told investigators about the man looking for his dog. He was quickly identified and ruled out the man had been looking for his dog and had posted missing posters. But when you don't have that path of investigation to follow and you don't have that knowledge, then you got to just say, be so comprehensive that, you know, you can't rule. There's no way to rule anything out and or anyone out. The other complexity that we were dealing with is most cases you have trouble developing any people of interest in an investigation. Our problem was is we had so many people of interest because we had to be so comprehensive. So we had to look at the registered sex offenders. We had to look at people who had been arrested but not convicted for suspected sex crimes. We had to look at any people that had any pedophile type behavior in their background. We had to look at anybody and everybody who we could identify that was out and about that night. And so as we would pour through these things, uh, different people would become persons of interest, some for a matter of minutes and some remain that to this day. Hey, Criminal Mischief Nation. Have you been thinking about starting a new business? Or maybe you already have a business and you've been wanting to get into the online game, but haven't because there's just so many platforms. Where do you even begin? I've got the answer. Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform that's revolutionizing both brick-and-mortar stores and online sites. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. What's cool is that Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Seriously, they track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock, which means you can connect with customers in line and online. 
Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mischief. That's M-I-S-C-H-I-E-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mischief to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash mischief. By November of 2009, Lindsay Baum's face was on the cover of People magazine, which, according to Rick, was both a blessing and a curse. When you have a case take on national attention, and we've had that happen before on, on other, some other cases, but not nearly to the extent that, that Lindsay's case did, it brings out a lot of the people who, you know, the, the psychics and, and the people who are the cyber sleuths around the world. And so the internet you know, has shrunk the world to the size of a dime. And so we were getting information from literally all over the world. And we were getting inquiries from all over the world, from media in Europe and, and all every place you could imagine. That's distracting to the investigators if they have to try to deal with that. So we, were, we worked very hard to manage that portion of the investigation and not burden any of the investigators and the su- supervisors that were out there trying to develop the investigation. But it, it does, it brings a little more pressure to bear when you've got that many people. You know, we brought in some very high tech at the time, looked like huge motorhomes, but they're literally, FBI has these rolling offices. And so we brought those in with computers and, and stuff to try to be as much on site as possible so that the guys could work in McClary, stay in McClary, and we weren't having to run back and forth. But, you know, when... You know, different different people showed up and, you know, you got to manage that so that you're not getting a bunch of rumor out there that suddenly becomes fact because somebody repeated it three times. So we worked hard to keep information out there, worked very closely with the family to have a representative there when we would do press conferences and talk to uh, the various media. I mean, Nightline sent out uh, Pierre Thomas and he rode around in my car with me for a week. Those kinds of things just add to the distraction, if you will, of trying to focus on the investigation itself. Lindsay's disappearance made local and national headlines. But in the months following her disappearance, no one came forward with that tip that could lead investigators any closer to finding Lindsay. It's really all such a fuzz to me now. I mean, it's almost like I was out of my body. I I don't even know. I Yeah, I mean, days just turned into weeks and... And Melissa says the keen one feels when your child goes missing is an indescribable pain that never goes away. But when you said I lost my right hand, I I never realized it until she was gone that she was my best friend. And I, I never realized it until she wasn't here anymore. But she really was my tiny little best friend, even though she annoyed the crap out of me sometimes. <laughs> And she wore me out. Um, was my best friend. Melissa says that accepting that her daughter was missing was difficult. But in her heart, 
she didn't believe that her daughter was dead. I mean, did they have any leads? Was there anything, I mean, was there anything that you could cling to? Was there any... In the beginning, sure. Um, The problem was it was a hard lesson to learn um, not to get your hopes up. In the early days of the investigation and throughout, investigators have been tight-lipped. But the message was clear. They were talking to anyone and everyone inside and outside of that town. And when you have few clues, every rock needs to be turned over, which ruffled a lot of feathers. I truly believe if Lindsay had been a generations deep lifer and McClary, it would have been a whole nother ballgame. But we were an out-of-town family that moved, and uh, I was a full-time working mom that worked out of town, so it wasn't like we got a chance to get involved in the community, but we got to know people at the local grocery store, in the video store, in the little local shell station right next to our house, and it, it wasn't like, but from the very beginning, I the circles, they, they circled the wagons. Uh, is what it was. And I I just always dismissed it as um, because so many of the initial people that were questioned or investigated or searched or whatever were generational townies. I don't know. I I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just don't know how else to refer to them as, you know, lifelong McCleary people, but generation-wise have been looked at and they were feeling defensive. But what I never what I never, which I could understand as a community member, how people could feel that way. What I never understood was why they blamed me for it. It was like they thought I had a magic wand and I was just pointing it at whoever I didn't think looked like I'd like them and telling the FBI and the sheriff, oh, go search them, make their lives hell because I just don't like the way they look. Honestly, None of the people, especially that were publicly searched, were even anybody that I'd ever even seen or heard of before. So that couldn't have been further from the truth. But that was the feeling that I always felt like they felt like I was purposely trying to destroy the reputation of their community and their residents. And it felt like that from day one. Over time, there would be movement in the case, resurrecting hope that maybe, just maybe, they would find Lindsay. In 2010, police and FBI would search the home of a 47-year-old man who had provided inconsistent statements to police. No arrests were made. In 2012, sheriff's deputies and the FBI got a search warrant for the home of a local shop owner, and they named him as a person of interest. On that search, investigators allegedly found ropes and handwritten notes about Lindsay's disappearance. But ultimately, no arrests were made. Two years later, in 2014, police would investigate another man. But again, nothing came of it. Then, a bombshell hit in the summer of 2017. News broke that police were searching the Mason County home that belonged to the Emery brothers, who had been charged for the possession of child pornography. That home in Mason County was searched after children's clothes and examples of child exploitation were found inside the brothers' Seattle home. Mason County is just 17 miles from McCleary. Cadaver dogs were sent to the property. We ruled them out. Their only involvement in this investigation was that when the King County authorities searched the home in Seattle, they found one of Lindsay's missing person flyers in the home. But we would later find out that the brother who lived out on the canal in Mason County regularly passed through McCleary on his way to events uh, involving car racing. And we were handing out those flyers to anybody and everybody. We regularly would set up at the main intersection 
in McClary where people would come off the freeway and then pass through McClary in order to go to Mason County. We would set up at that intersection and hand out car- flyers to cars when they stopped at the stop signs because um, it's a kind of a three-way intersection. So we were handing those out by the thousands. So the fact that they would have one at that home in Seattle, while initially it was a red flag, we later ruled them out as having any possible involvement in this. Over the years, more than 20 search warrants would be executed, and nearly 40 polygraph tests were administered in this case. We conducted multiple search warrants on multiple locations on a variety of different people over the course of this investigation. Some of those searches were based on the fact that people gave inconsistent statements or were untruthful about what they about the information that they provided initially. Uh, some of them were based on the fact that people were in, were out and about and or had things in their criminal history or in their past that caused us to believe that they may might have knowledge or involvement in the investigation. So all of those things allowed for probable cause to search, but no one at any point rose to the level that we considered them an actual suspect. You know, they were they were people of interest that we were exploring the possibility of their having knowledge involvement, but we never found that one piece of evidence that would conclusively say they did. Many of my officers worked nonstop on this. I literally would have to order people to go home and get some rest. I worked 65 days straight without a day off, 12 to 16 hours a day. We did everything we could to try to find her. And Melissa never lost hope that Lindsay would come back to her. Because every time that they would um, do a search, like a, like they would, you know, that we know about, I just expect, oh, they're going to find her. They're going to find her, you know, and I fully expected that she was going to come home alive looking back. And even then people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, you're in denial. Well, I never denied that that was a possibility, but I just, I felt, I still felt her. And to me, that meant she was still on earth. So maybe I misread it. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, um, well, isn't that the hardest you don't know? I mean, mother's intuition yeah. is well, and so... Well, that was just it. Like, it didn't matter what I thought happened because I couldn't breathe until I knew. And little did I know that even once I knew, breathing would be even more difficult. In September of 2017, unbeknownst to the wider world, a discovery was made. Hunters were deep in the woods in a remote area near Ellensburg, which is in eastern Washington. Those hunters happened upon what appeared to be a fractured human skull, and they contacted the police. Now, at this time, there was nothing connecting this skull to Lindsay's disappearance. McCleary is a three-hour drive away from Ellensburg. Those investigators did their due diligence and sent the partial skull to the FBI crime lab for DNA analysis. But the request wasn't fast-tracked. And finally, in May of 2018, the DNA results came in. They were a match to Lindsay Baum. I'm here today to share with you that we've brought Lindsay home. We've recovered her. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. Her remains were recovered in September of 2017, unknowingly, by some hunters in a remote portion of eastern Washington. Those remains were turned over to local authorities who in turn released them to the FBI where they were confirmed to be human and sent to the 
FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia for analysis for DNA. Because the remains were not associated with a specific criminal investigation, they were not analyzed for DNA until just recently. So just in the recent week where we notified that the DNA collected from the remains matched the DNA submitted to the lab in 2009. Melissa says when the sheriff, FBI, and others showed up at her doorstep, in that moment, upon opening the door, any vestiges of hope that her beloved daughter was alive were snuffed. I, I, don't, I just felt hope drain through my feet. <laughs> I just, I remember kind of shaking and... Um, were you by yourself? Did you have any other... Was your yeah. son with you? Or you no. Were, you were... No, no my, no. my son didn't live with me at that point. He was living in Lacey. Um, I feel like time stopped for you that night, in a way. It did. And unfortunately, my son lost his mother, too. And it's done more damage to him than anybody could ever imagine. And he... He was never considered a victim. He spent most of those nine years being a suspect, at least in the court of public opinion. Nobody saw him for the victim that he was. And it's damaged our relationship, probably irreparably forever. He he, he felt vindicated. And, and I was glad for that because finally he felt like, now they know I didn't murder my sister. After the remains of Lindsay had been identified that month in May, a massive effort was undertaken. 200 volunteers and law enforcement, along with 22 canine teams, searched the area where Lindsay's partial skull had been found, which was in heavily timbered terrain, steep cliffs, and deep ravines. The search was believed to be one of the largest in state history based on the number of personnel involved. Getting the notification that her daughter had been murdered did nothing to change Melissa's mission to find justice for Lindsay which meant keeping her daughter's name alive in the hearts and minds of people was paramount. Even down to trying to get the garden put in. That was a freaking nightmare. You would have thought that we asked the city to foot the bill and do the work and and still take it out of their own pockets. I mean, it was so ridiculous. I had to sneak in the brass plaque at the last minute so that what were they going to do at the unveiling? Make me take it out? Because they wanted nothing to even remotely look re- remotely similar to a memorial. They were adamant about it. So my little bronze plaque with a poem and her birthday and her disappearance death day was not acceptable. But I did it behind their back to get it in. Is this, is McCleary a town where it's like, leave it to Beaver? Or is it like, is this, are they trying to protect I something? It leave it to Beaver. I I'm, yeah, I, now when I think of it, I think of deliverance. And I know that sounds bad, but I don't know any other way to describe it. Melissa doesn't live in McCleary anymore. She says it's too painful. She's in nearby Alma because she won't stop until they catch the person responsible for kidnapping and murdering her daughter, which is why she reached out to well-known Seattle attorney Ann Bremner for help. How long ago did you talk to get Ann on your side? In 28. 2018. Well, actually, I've known Anne. I met Anne the first time I did the Nancy Grace show in 2009. So, I mean, I knew that she was there if I needed her. I just, I never felt the need to meet an attorney. Like, I, I just allowed myself to put my trust in law enforcement. And looking back, I, I regret it tremendously. 
um, because I wasted a lot of time by, by not getting an attorney and bringing Rose in sooner. I'd been talking to Rose for like four years before 2018 when she finally officially came in. Um, it was just every time I brought it up to law enforcement, they'd have a fit. I mean, it was every like time you brought up what getting a, the yellow page, every time getting you brought... an investigator, a private investigator. And, and then it would start in on how I would, you know, hinder the investigation and I'd just do all this and waste all this money and blah, blah, blah. And it'd be a nightmare. And, and, and so in my mind, I'm seeing it that I'm hurting my daughter because in my mind, until the day that they told me that she'd been 99.999 positively identified via DNA, I fully expected that my child was alive. So in my mind, I'm afraid to say anything on TV or in the news that might piss off her captors and make him hurt her worse. And I'm afraid to do anything to jeopardize the investigation because I am just waiting for law enforcement to find her and sweep in and save her. So I was so controlled by my fear for all those years that I didn't do things that I wish I would have done sooner. Private investigator Rose Winquist, who's working on the case pro bono, has created her own profile based on her tireless work on this case. She believes that Lindsay was kidnapped by someone who was a local and who lived in McCleary and either knew Lindsay or was familiar with her in some way. She thinks he was a man in his 20s at the time of Lindsay's abduction and possibly coaxed Lindsay into the car, sexually assaulted her, and then, worried that she would tell, murdered her. In 2021, Paul Beaker was arrested for the rape of a girl who was 17 in 2003 when he kidnapped her. He pulled her into his vehicle, tied her up, and drove her to a place where he raped her. Afterwards, Beaker took her somewhere near McCleary and left her there. She was able to free herself and was taken to a hospital where investigators collected evidence. But the case went cold. In December of 2020, the sheriff was able to get grant money to send the DNA from that rape kit to a private lab for genealogy testing, which led investigators to Paul Beaker, who they learned lived in McCleary in 2003 in a residence near where the teen had lived. Detectives were able to get a surreptitious sample of Beaker's DNA from a discarded item, and it was a match for the 2003 sexual assault. Over the years, there were rumors that the case of the 17-year-old girl who was kidnapped and raped was connected with Lindsay's abduction and murder. Authorities still say there are several persons of interest in Lindsay's abduction and murder, including Paul Beaker, who was ultimately found guilty of first-degree rape with deliberate cruelty for his attack on the 17-year-old girl in McCleary six years before Lindsay vanished. At this time, Beaker has not been formally charged with any crime related to Lindsay's disappearance and murder. Last year, the Grays Harbor County Sheriff's Office followed up on a tip it received shortly after Lindsay's disappearance. And on March 25th and 26th, 2023, they would search a 10-acre piece of land in Mason County. It's unknown if anything was found or why that area was searched. I think they're going to get them. That I've never hindered in because I'm not going to stop until it's done. I mean, I might just get crazier and crazier as the years pass, but I'm, my mission will remain intact. I'm, um, I'm not going to let them forget her because her life meant something. And um, with her life, they, they didn't just take her life. 
they they took a future of of my son and and myself that we all should have had. I'm just not going to let that go unnoticed. I'm not going to let that be forgotten. And I'm not going to let the fact that there is still a child murderer on the street. And if I can do something to stop that next victim, I will do anything I can to stop that person from taking someone else's child. Because it's a fact. It is statistically proven that they will if they haven't already. And the fact that the city is so concerned with my banners being offensive, they're, they're not offended by the fact that there's a child murderer on the loose and somebody stole her life and they think that I just need to get over it and move on so that the community can forget the darkness. And that's the attitude they've had with me all along and I get angry and then when I lash out, people think, oh, well, you're being unreasonable. You need to be grateful for everything they've done. What have they done? <laughs> what have they done but torment me and make me think that I'm insane because I'm mad that somebody killed my god, my daughter. If you have a tip, call 206-229-5055 or email tips to rose at winquistinvestigations.com or if you want to remain anonymous, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-748-6422. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.